Welcome to week two of the Emergence of Israel, our 45-minute Bible study Sunday mornings, looking at the passages between uh, the Exodus departing Egypt and the eventual settlement uh, in Jerusalem and the surrounding highlands uh, with King David and his band and how we got settled, started, originated as a nation state. Thanks for listening. We are looking at this weird section of time uh, when we have wandering in the wilderness uh, moving into becoming a nation state and it's called the emergence of Israel because there's different models of understanding how this might have happened and that's the surprising piece and if models seems a little technical to you I'm sorry I don't know how to fix that um, the, the fact is it's an uncertainty on the far end of this, and even of this morning, and certainly as we wrap up next week, where, where we'll get to is, it matters how you think, think about our own country. How did our country start? I made this joke last week. Columbus Day has changed dramatically in the last five, 10 years because we've reassessed the model of what happened at the start of our country. And now we are much more ambivalent, ambiguous, models to say what was really going on. Um, I know I was raised with, you know, we Protestants came across the ocean and, you know, as a, a very specific model of all the good we did. And now I don't celebrate Columbus Day anymore. And now I listen to people saying, wait a minute, Don, your model of what this country is about is remarkably skewed by who you are and by the people who taught you. And it's got some problems with it. It's got some baggage with it. Real quick, if we can I'll just, uh, we're gonna, we're really on the conquest model number four. But just to do a little review, and if you have any questions, by all means, always throw your hand in the air. Um, like we were mentioning this morning, language we use is unique and authoritative about your scripture, not inerrant. Uh, we know that it's a historical document full of different authors and peculiarities and bad translations and hard to understand interpretations. So we, pray to understand, and our, uh, our denomination has been very clear about that. We looked at some passages last week that have great violence in them, that describe the territory, uh, but there seem to be competing traditions about whether uh, there was a lot of destruction going on, or whether that destruction maybe had already happened and we moved into the town. That was the episode uh, about Jericho. Uh, that by all architectural records suggested had been empty for a couple centuries by the time we got there and were just ruins. Ruins are pretty handy if you put those big walls back together. Um, there was lots of plague, lots of violence. We'll get into that today about why that might not necessarily mean a total conquest model. Um, so we're clarifying this as we go along. Our timeline we see in, in number two, the 17 and 1500 of the, uh, before our common era, uh, we have evidence archeologically, even historically, because there are written records, mostly trade records, um, about who was big, who was wealthy, who was in power. <laughs> Just a little reminder here, on Roman numeral three, all would agree, uh, Mernepta, and this is extremely helpful, Mernepta, we, we have his dates, about 1220, wrote a victory hymn, the, uh, the only extra-biblical, meaning outside the Bible, record we have of us 
the Hebrew children is him. Merneptah saying uh, in, a, in a battle scene, Israel is laid waste, his seed is no longer. So what for him was a throwaway, we go, wait a minute, apparently we did exist. <laughs> apparently there was a group called Israel. Um, a question gets asked here, is this taught in seminary? Yeah. This is all, I should say it's all taught in mainline, old line seminaries for the last 50 years. If you go to a conservative seminary, they probably don't focus on it much because it's a little challenging and seems to argue against the theology of a story that says, God chose us, gave us that land, that's why we could move in and wipe you all out, because you're not us. Um, but also we need to ask today especially, we did get our start then uh, around after 1220, 1200, 1150. Uh, there's uh, Roman numeral 3C. There's a relatively sudden rise of village settlements in the highlands at the start of the Iron Age. Isn't that weird to think of, we're just past the Stone Age and the Bronze Age, which is a couple centuries, and we're moving into the Iron Age. Makes us sound like cavemen and women out there. Uh, what, what the truth of it is, is we didn't have the technology and the weaponry to defend ourselves well, or what we thought was well was flints. Stone pieces that you had chipped off that we could strap to a spear. All right, that, that's where we are. Digging so we can dig a cistern goes way better with iron tools when the ground, like I said, in Palestine, Israel is horrible on the crescent, the, what they call the fertile crescent right along the Mediterranean. As soon as you get 20, 30, 50 miles inland, desert, wasteland, no one can live there. You wouldn't want to. Um, no different today. How are we settling in there? Why are we settling in there? Uh, we think, we think the reason is and why it happens now is because the Iron Age, someone came up with a clever idea of getting the, the fires even hotter, insulated, whatever, so that the rocks themselves start to bleed material that we can pour in and then let set. And now it's really strong, strongest thing yet. If we can make it sharp, if we can make it for an axle, all those advantages aren't as much advantages in the highlands. We know from the Old Testament now the stories of David arising. It's guerrilla warfare. David comes down out of the hills and attacks Jerusalem. David comes down little villages, and he's trying to put different forces together against King Saul, for example. So let's go to, oh, does someone pull out a Bible? <laughs> I know that. Hang on. I always tease people. Oh, you can't tell a Bible from a hymnal? There I am. Uh, let's look at, um, here's the conquest. Did we already read this last week? We did. It's just an example of, of, of a conquest model. Uh, God told them to go in and lay everything waste. Take the crops, take the animals, take some slaves, kill everybody else. Um, there will be, even today, progressive, liberal, I don't know how you'd want to talk about them, Jews who would say, yeah, we get that this is a problem, our central doctrine of assuming that God gave us the land and no one else can be here. It's caused bloodshed for 3,000 years. Um, it's a problem. 
Let's see. Oh, yeah, here us. We already did this. Number two, even. In that conquest, we do have archaeological evidence of a lot of places destroyed around this time, 1,000, 1,100. There must have been violence. There was fires. Um, but then the question here is, was some of that maybe in the tombs just disease? And the way we want to take advantage of this diseased city that everyone vacated is we'll burn the whole thing to make it extra clean, pull the bodies over here, so not a warfare, but the hazard of life 3,000 years ago. Um, a lot of them are children, which die in childhood in those ages, 50% under 18, I'm seeing, and then this disease piece as well. Did Egypt destroy these cities? Did we? Egypt come through? We know that we're not as grandiose as we wanted to be. We're a small, inconsequential tribe. In Egypt, uh, Egypt uh, to the south and Canaan to the right, uh, huge um, other, and we recognize this even from Bible stories about who we're trying to make peace with um, in the 900s, 800s. There's still the huge forces, the kings, their armies, who we try to get along with so we can survive. Um, Babylon. Maybe Egypt destroyed those cities. I wrote this paper years ago. I don't know why, how I chose, probably less than a thousand. Um, to tell you the truth, when I, last week, 600,000 is mentioned, I think, twice. And we just know that's an impossibility since the whole population of the Nile Delta was about twice that, a little over a million. Just, it's just not feasible in any stretch of the imagination. Um, and we don't know what theological, symbolic sense to make of that 600,000. If we have 1,000 on the Exodus, that's men, women, and children. A third of those might be able to fight. Uh, the town, the city of Ai, Ai, also uh, was at this time undisturbed. They have those records and dig down and say, yeah, it talks about Hebrews coming in and taking over these towns, but the fact is there's no sign of anything then. Um, they're resettled after centuries of being ruins. So here's the conquest model. And again, uh, we're going to go conquest and then we're going to go right into revolution, infiltration, these models. The conquest model, if you're like me, that's how you were raised. Um, isn't God powerful and wonderful that so few people could, could beat much, much bigger armies? I thought that was really cool as a kid. Um, isn't God strong? Isn't it a miracle that so few Hebrew children could kill all these other people? I don't know when that started to bother me, later than it should have. Um, the conquest model assumes a band of people prior to this, a pre-Palestine existence, and we don't have any records of that. That's a problem. That's the weird part about this class, right? Me loving the picture of my woman dancing on the shore after the crossing of the Red Sea. I say we start there. That's because I believe Genesis is, is the prequel. And we, we tell our story in our movie, and then we say, you know, we could really, let's go back and make a prequel. And we tell stories that we know from your grandparents and your grandparents, et cetera, and great-grandparents. They do inform us, but it's not like we were there in one long, continuous story, keeping track, keeping in our diaries. And then this happened and Cain and Abel and da-da-da-da and Abraham. Um, 
The problem with the conquest model, it requires something we don't have any evidence of. This independent band, identity, military mass, strategy, capability to do significant things. It also doesn't explain this. Later on, as we get, we're in Joshua Judges Ruth. We're in Joshua Judges, we're trying to decide who's, who's in charge. And later on in the Old Testament, uh, with you know, uh, Samuels and Kings and Chronicles, we have lots of intertribal unrest. If that was a unified group, they, once they get into the t- area, we fight like crazy, killing each other, arguing over this and that, arguing over land. Uh, we weren't very unified if we were unified at all. Um, so I want you to hold that in mind. It also, uh, with that, doesn't explain why Canaan is so bad. If we came in, God gave us the power, and we wiped everyone out, why do we keep on, as the years go on, having this chip on our shoulder about Canaan? They should be gone. No, we're still fighting about them. So they are still there. Why this severe anti-Canaanite agenda in our poetry, in our songs, what God is doing for us? That all sounds like fighting words designed to keep up something in 11 and then 1,000, 100 years later, right? That there's still this conflict going on. It's throughout the Old Testament. We're always against them. It's always them and us. That doesn't speak of a conquest that's decisive. That speaks of something else. What I love about the conquest model is it makes great use of Exodus. It's very filmable. It's a wonderful story. It talks about our liberation. We go out and wander in the desert, and now we've got to find a home. We're going. It's a great theological story, and it really makes good use of the book. All right, I'm going to suggest instead, or in addition, turn your page. One of the models of understanding how we got here is revolution. This, what fun. This should be really popular with Americans. Right? We believe in revolution. Um, let's see, I, now, we need to, now we need to look at some scripture. Can I have someone look up, uh, oh gosh, no, just, would you find a Bible there underneath or something? I'm going to go turn to Joshua. I'm going to read a little of this to you. Because this is the revolution model, the covenant renewed at Shechem. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. We're already in the territory. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, officials, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your forefathers, Terah, Abraham, etc., lived beyond the river. That's interesting uh, to think about the river as the crossing. And worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. By the way, the land beyond the river, this is the Jordan River. It's right in that territory. It divides desert wasteland and the fertile crescent. Um, If we think of this is where we want to be and where we're settling around and the other side of the river uh, is wilderness. We might just have that as a substitution for the desert. It's all desert. Sometimes I think when I visit Red Rocks, I look down and think, you know, the Midwest starts five miles from here. You have a sense of coming out of the mountains, and then it's just flat. Look, it's clear enough I can see the airport. Um, As my kids used to like to remind me, Dad, it's actually uh, flatter than a pancake. Do you know this? 
when you get to Kansas, statistically, the variation on your typical pancake is more than the... It's really flat. Um, and so in the same way, we're crossing the river, and that is just a wasteland. We know we'd still call it Israel today. Or we'd say well, way around to Egypt, Babylon. But for us, 200 yards that way, is there's nothing there. Where's Johnny? He went out in the desert. Doggone it. He was supposed to be back by dinner. I assigned the hill country to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. I like this a lot. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. We know where that is. That's further south. But if you looked at your map, there's a Red Sea, and then there's like a finger that comes up that would be considered the Red Sea as well, if you're already thinking fantastically, and how did that crossing take place? But they cried for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought, he brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. They lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. This sounds like a bad Tolkien ripoff, doesn't it? But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amalites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, Mosquito Bites, Jebusites. Gave them in your hands. Sent the hornet ahead of you. I don't know what that means. Let's see. Um, 13, 24, 13. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. Interesting. That's the gift. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, I fear the Lord, why is this passage so long that I want you to read this? Oh, this goes down, let's skip, skip down to, let's skip down to uh, 19. Joshua said to the people, this is my favorite part of Joshua, you are not able to serve the Lord. This is, this is the first evidence of reverse psychology. I don't know, but I love it. You aren't able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God, but he's also a jealous God, saying this isn't going to go well. You can't serve the Lord. He's a jealous, don't, you, don't. You can't. I mean, he's a holy. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. There's a great message we don't preach on. God will not forgive your sins. Just get that straight. <laughs> if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he, he will... Foreign gods. Again, this feels like uh, we're trapped. What foreign gods? We're still in the cities. We're still... There's gods around us. What gods? All these other people are around us, with us apparently. He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. 21. But the people said to Joshua, oh yeah, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, yeah, fine. Your witness is against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we, yes, we are witnesses. It's really a wonderful uh, facing off. Your witnesses now throw away the foreign gods. So the sense of uh, temptation, foreign what do I have here? What? 621 to 25. Flipping back. Oh, here we go. 
I, I, again, this is a great story to get us a flavor of what it might have looked like with the revolution. I'm on 621. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Okay, that sounds like conquest, awful destruction. 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land. Do you know the story? This, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out, and all who have belonged to her in accordance with your oath to her. Remember they had gone into the land and they had gone up on her roof and hiding from the soldiers and she had said, no, I'm actually with you against this city. And she put a red, yeah, I know, right? I don't know how Freudian and Jungian you want to get. She puts the red thread out. This is, this is throughout feminist literature, by the way, right? The Red Tent. Can you read that book 20 years ago? Come on. This, it, it, powerful stuff. She puts the red cord. It saves their lives. They find out who she is, that they're okay there. And they make a promise. She says, uh, I'm helping you and saving your life because the guys are at my door. And they, I think they lie under uh, sheaves on her roof. And she goes, I don't know, there's no spies here. And uh, they later, thank you, they say. She says, remember me. She says, no harm will come to you. In accordance with your oath to her, so the young men who had done the spying went in, brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers, all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place uh, just outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city, everything in it. They put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron in the treasury, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, who with her family and all who belonged to her, because she had hid the men Joshua sent as spies. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Oh, I know where we're going now. Do you know where we're going now to Matthew? This is, it's October, whatever it is, and I haven't had us in the New Testament yet. You guys should have fired me weeks ago. Matthew, uh, Matthew 1. What do we find in Matthew 1? We'll be here in a, another month. The genealogy. And when we're remembering the story of Jesus, we go down to 1 5. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This is, how we're, this is how we're remembering Jesus, who his parents were. And we go back to the prostitute because she, we owe her everything. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that won't, that's not going to show up in our Christmas. I don't know what kind of Christmas stuff we do. Trust me, it's not going to show up. Um, or maybe it should. I love it. Let's see. Liberation theology. In 1967, there was a Catholic meeting in Medellin, Colombia, where this was said. God has a preferential option for the poor. Next time someone tells you, God wants equality for everyone, you say no. God prefers the poor and the powerless. God's, God loves everyone. Yes, yes, yes. God does not treat everyone equally. That's whole, true in the Old Testament as well. So start of what we call liberation theology, that God's agenda is to help those who need helping, which is why he heard, I heard your cry while you were in Egypt. That's what I heard. The start of, and this makes us very anxious. This gets uh, uh, labeled with communism and socialism and whatever conservatives want to label it as, as something that's a threat. They're right, it's a threat. Yeah, they're right, the gospel is a threat. 
It is. We will get here uh, Mary's song of praise, right? The Magnificat, the so beautiful. Woe unto you, you rich people. You've already had your good things. Wait till you see what God's going to do to you. Yay! <laughs> it's all there. It's all there in the texts. Um, so I, I get that this revolution model makes us anxious, even though our country ostensibly was started with this. Um, What's great about the revolution, we don't need to account for a mass displacement of people. We don't need 600,000 people. We need a band of outlaws coming out of Egypt, still ticked at Pharaoh, to come in and inspire the rest of us to say, throw off the shackles, quit paying the, ta- the outrageous taxes, let's do our own cities, screw the trade routes, we can do this. We're going to be the free people. God chose us. We want to live free. Um, I'm on B. <laughs> what are you? Are we on Roman numeral four, letter B, number two? Don't, don't you wish my sermons were this were outlined? You know? So I try to be compassionate. Thank you, Sarah. Um, because I do think in weird ways and uh, nonlinear ways sometimes. That's what turns my heart. And it's frustrating for some. I've made some people confused in the last few weeks of wh- where you're going. We, they want to. I was never a great student because I got bored too quickly. My preaching professor. Uh, my preaching professor said, Don, um, I told you this last week, you don't seem to preach from an outline. You seem to more, you kind of preach by footnote. <laughs> uh, and you require, that makes a lot of strain on some of your listeners. And then she gave me the preaching award, just so you know. This, what it good about the theology here, it combines the, th- Yahwehism is we like, this is the name of God. We have a, a number of names for God in those uh, first books of the Old Testament. Um, we know there's great oppression at the time, uh, great social, political, economic unrest. That's going to come next week. We know this from about 15 to, here's a, Here's your economics lesson. From about 15 to 1300, Egypt was doing so well that it overextended financially, trying to conquer too many lands, and what led was a necessary uh, shrinking back. Um, Because that's the rule of physics and economics when you overextend. Um, So these local lords are paying taxes to Egypt and they're trying to get along with the military pieces and whoever's operating the trade routes. But after a while, that gets unrestful. Uh, or I guess, isn't that, the word is restive, right? R-E-S-T-I-V-E. That means not resting. It means a little upset. The natives were restive. I always get confused by that. That's this. People are saying, I resent the heck out of Egypt. Um, they've overextended. Now they're having to pull back. By the way, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, da 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 da. El Shaddai means uh, God, El of the mountains, Shaddai, God up on high. Uh, which would be dumb if we were just a bunch of farmers down in the Fertile Crescent. Makes a lot of sense if Bithgar roots are 
coming down to attack and steal from your, from your warehouses and then go back up into the hills where your chariots and crossbows aren't terribly effective and where the guerrilla band. God of the mountains, the supreme sheik, that's our, some Egyptian roots there. All right, what I love about revelation as well, revolution, we could see, and again, in terms of models, I, we can't leave Scripture behind. I want it to live and breathe. I need to preach from it. I want to keep visiting these stories. And so this Exodus group makes great use of Exodus. We could think of however this group big-wise is. Um, they might survive for a while in the desert. I don't for a minute believe it's 40 years. Uh, is it a number of months? Is it a couple of years? Uh, people, here's a newsflash. People can't survive in the desert. Anytime we hear 40 in Scripture, we're going, that's not meant chronologically. Never is any other time. Why would it be this time? Um, it's, a, it's an indeterminate, feels too long period of God being with us. Jesus in the desert, 40 days, is based on this text. He goes out because that's what happens. You go out into the desert like the Hebrew children were, trying to find El Shaddai so you can come back and do your thing. You have your vision quest and then you come back in. So we get Exodus group that we don't need to be a huge group. They could be the inspiration for a much bigger continuing overthrowing. One interesting thing about the conquest passages, and then Joshua brought the people in and overcame king so-and-so. Often it's names that are overthrown, and they defeated king so-and-so rather than we took Castle Rock and Sedalia, we took the leaders of the town. Again, that might be the suggestion. They came in, killed the leadership, and th this is Putin. What he's planning for Eastern Ukraine has already accomplished in many ways. You don't need to destroy everything. You can, or you come in and say you're no longer the, unless you want to be killed, you're no longer the mayor. I am, or this guy is. Um, so maybe nowhere near as much violence as we needed, but rather the upper leadership gets replaced or gets inspired by our story and says, you're right, why are we paying all that to Egypt? Screw them. We could be our own group. We get a sense in 4C, Baal, they convert to Judaism. Um, why do I have Christianity there? Whoops. Uh, we don't, no longer Canaanites. We're not naming, oh, Canaan being the land, we're not naming them by where they live, but who they're still giving allegiance to. Uh, the hapiru might be the word we get Hebrew from. That's a breath mark uh, and spelled very similar. We do read about those. Uh, and later on, they're considered eh, tacky. Our equivalent would be hippies or something, or social reactionaries or something. Antifa, they're Antifa. Uh, and they're resented, but they may also be the impetus uh, for a larger public group to say, huh, maybe we do have a right to something here. Old Testament has a lot of concern for anti-slave laws. Weird. Why would we care about anti-slave laws if we were just a bunch of, if we'd wiped everyone out? Rather, we'd be concerned that once we get infiltrating in. We want to make society a little more equitable than it had been before. I'm trying to clarify, as we come to power and formalize our structures, uh, we want to treat people better than they were at the previous occupants. 
And then if you also need to keep on coming across the redistribution of land and debts. In the year of Jubilee, in the 49th, 50th year, all debts would be wiped out and the land that you took over because you're a clever manager goes back to the previous family who had hard seasons and had to sell it to you. And there's a lot of concern about the land and giving back, returning, wiping of debts. Maybe Rahab's story becomes the blueprint for how we move into a territory, make some connections with people who are already oppressed and put under, and they take our side. And so our our movement grows in this revolution. (laughs) Let's see. Let's do five first. Uh, if If we're a bunch of revolutionaries, does that preach? What do you think? Where does that go for a white upper-class church? Do we like revolutionaries? I'm really open on this. I don't mean to set you up with snide questions. As soon as I got out of seminary, oh, you went to San Francisco Seminary. Uh, That's that liberation theology seminary. Not an attractive thing to have on your uh, dossier at the time. They wanted me from Princeton or from Pittsburgh. San, San Francisco, that's those hippies that's leftist. Aren't there, aren't there communists on staff there? Aren't there com- <laughs> Luckily, I didn't say that. Aren't there communists on there who advocate redistribution of wealth? And you want to say, yes, read your Bible. Do revolutions work? Somebody offers, it depends on whose side you're on. Depends on which side you're on. Depends where the power is. Depends how long they work. We've got an incredibly unjust system here. Better than it used to be in some ways, yeah. (laughs) I have this, or is scripture evidence that never really did or entirely did. Once you get into the prophets, once you get into this Old Testament settling, Then we're into Isaiah, Jeremiah, the heart of the Old Testament, the biggest section, which is all, you darn kings, God gave this to you, and look what you're doing to all the poor. Damn you. There's there's the middle part of the Bible. God took care of you, and now you're screwing the poor. Way to go. So apparently the revolution didn't exactly work like we wanted. We have so much anger, so much social justice economics embedded throughout the Old Testament and in the Gospels. Um, Yeah, it's fun once we get to end of next month. The whole start of Advent is, will there someday be economic justice? We hope someday. Will someone come and throw the king over? We hope so. Mary says so in her song. Isn't that great? Beautiful. Advent 1 and 2 are just us with picket signs saying, uh, tax the rich. Don't worry, I'll be way nicer. Come, I'll be in the mood then. Christmas will be coming. I'll be on my best behavior list. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. What else? Because this is a good place to stop. What else? Overview, other odd questions, Nance? Somebody asks, isn't that where we are today? That's what the Bible's supposed to be, doesn't it? 
that'll preach, I say. That's how contemporary it is. She says, it feels like we're in the middle of a revolution. And at that point, the batteries run out. At that point, as to preserve my pastoral security in my job, the batteries run out of the machine and it stops recording. What followed was a profound conversation between uh, all the class members, the 20, 25 of us, uh, around social justice issues and the very political difficulties we're facing today. I'm sorry to say it wasn't recorded. I will replace the batteries and do better next week. <laughs>